0: Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, America's sin industries look to consolidate and the new technologies that are guzzling tons of energy. But first, the growing calls for universal basic income. So for those who haven't heard the term before, universal basic income is an idea that governments should provide citizens with what's effectively a stipend, a certain amount of money per month or per year that would help keep roofs overheads and meals on plates. Kind of like welfare, but unconditional. Now, this is an old idea. It goes back to the 1500s, but it's certainly not the sort of thing that screams out American capitalism. That said, it has received a lot of attention lately as left-leaning folks have ascended in Democratic Party circles even though the party's most notable lefty leaders haven't yet quite embraced it. It's also getting talked a lot about in Silicon Valley as it's publicly intrigued both Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and for those old enough to remember, it's not entirely dissimilar, at least in purpose, from the negative income tax that Republican President Richard Nixon once proposed for low earners. So two other things to know. First, expect calls for UBI to only increase, particularly in age of increased automation and possibly a job-killing recession on top of it. And second, there isn't really any broad historical precedent for implementing UBI, as most tests in other countries have been kind of small, limited pilot programs or really just a reworking of existing welfare programs. The bottom line, if you pay attention to the Democratic primary campaigns that begin next year or simply happen to live in states like Iowa or New Hampshire, you're going to hear a whole lot about UBI, maybe not always from candidates, but certainly from constituents. In 15 seconds, though, we will be joined by a 2020 presidential candidate who is talking a lot about UBI, Andy Yang. But first this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata Podcast. We're joined now by Andy Yang, an entrepreneur who once started an education company and then created something called Venture for America, which was designed to help entrepreneurs create jobs in underserved cities like Baltimore and Detroit. And now he is a candidate on the Democratic side for president in 2020. Let's start with branding. You talk about universal basic income, but also say you wanna call it a freedom dividend. Is there a distinction between these two things or is it purely to make it more palatable?
1: Well, universal basic income is a policy that goes back to the founding fathers. Thomas Paine was for it. And then in more recent years, Milton Friedman was for it. Martin Luther King was for it. So universal basic income is a very broad policy where everyone in a society gets a certain amount of money to meet basic needs. And so there are many varieties of universal basic income. And my actual proposal is a freedom dividend where every adult between 18 to 64 will get $1,000 a month. So the freedom dividend is my proposed form of universal basic income.
0: Give me the basic argument for this in the sense of, and and particularly you say every American between 1864, so it it sounds like this is not a means-tested sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. You have to destigmatize it, you have to universalize it, and you also have to take out the administration of it because there have been many, many examples of administrative programs that have ended up creating more bureaucracy and have failed to streamline the system, particularly when you're talking about 126 existing welfare programs. So my proposal, the Freedom Dividend, is universal, it's not means-tested, and so it would become a right of citizenship for every American.
0: One of the arguments against this, and and, and somebody who you might face in, in this race, Joe Biden, has basically argued that this seems to be replacing work. It potentially devalues work. How do you respond to that?
1: You know, it's actually the opposite of the truth, where the Freedom Dividend is incredibly pro-work. It would create 4 million new jobs, it would create incredible entrepreneurship and business formation activities around the country. And it would also keep every American from being pushed into uh, an exploitative situation that they don't like in the sense of helping people find work that they actually want to do and value. Because right now, we have many, many Americans who are working in subsistence dead-end jobs that, frankly, we're about to automate away 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years. Truck driving jobs, the most common jobs in 29 states, are about to get automated away by self-driving trucks. Joe Biden saying universal basic income is somehow going to keep people from working. But the truth is that more people will find more meaningful work with a freedom dividend, and it's not like anyone's going to quit their job on $6 an hour. Freedom dividend puts you below the poverty line in the United States, which is $12,770. So it's not a work replacement at all. You said that it would
0: help encourage entrepreneurship. I I understand how it would help the working poor. How how does it encourage entrepreneurship?
1: Right now, 57% of Americans can't pay an unexpected $500 bill, so they're locked in a mindset of scarcity, living week to week, month to month, paycheck to paycheck. And I've worked with hundreds, thousands of entrepreneurs around the country. I'm a serial entrepreneur myself. Most entrepreneurs are not starting businesses while they're also just worried about keeping a roof over their head. Would 12
0: grand really be the thing that would cause somebody to decide to take the risk of starting a business?
1: Well, you have to look at 12 grand extrapolated across an economy. So if you look at a town in Missouri that has 50,000 adults, and then now that town has $60 million more in purchasing power, and so if there is an individual in that town that wanted to start a bakery, it might have been a stupid idea before. But now with everyone having some more capital in their hands, and then that individual entrepreneur knows that even if their bakery fails, they can at least go home and survive, then they're much more likely to take that risk. They're much more likely to have other people that want to join them in that endeavor. And that would be extrapolated again over and over again, not just in that town in Missouri, but in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and on and on.
0: There have been tests, call them pilot programs or tests or whatever you want to call them, in other countries uh, with universal basic income, usually pretty limited, relatively narrow in terms of the populations. But we haven't seen too many, and most of the ones that have been launched, the pilots either haven't been re-upped and they certainly haven't become nationalized. Is there an example you point to to say, they're the ones who did it right, look at this and it's still ongoing? Because I'm searching for one, but haven't found one.
1: Sure. So in my book that came out earlier this year, The War on Normal People, where I go through the fact that we're automating away the most common jobs in the U.S. economy. I went and found every study of cash transfers in the U.S., in Canada, and the developed world, and the results were staggeringly consistent, where people got money into their hands in this fashion. Nutrition improves, graduation rates improve, mental health improves, physical health improves, productivity goes up domestic violence goes down, hospital visits go down. People just get stronger, more active, and more entrepreneurial and enterprising in every trial that you can find. And so it's true that there have been a couple of fledgling pilot programs around the world
0: so you are running for president uh, for 2020, which which makes you a very early uh, person jumping in. You obviously have very low name recognition. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, is this campaign designed to increase the um, visibility of UBI as a possible policy? Is your main goal to raise the visibility of UBI, or is it to win?
1: I'm headlining a major progressive event in Iowa later this month, my seventh trip there. I'll be making my seventh trip to New Hampshire very shortly. And I have to say, the people in Iowa and New Hampshire are very, very excited about the message that the economy has changed for good and that we need to adapt and evolve. So I have a real chance to win based upon the feedback I'm getting from the early states.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew Yang. My final two right after this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com and now back to the pro rata podcast Now it's time for my final two. And first up is news overnight. The Canadian cannabis company Kronos is in talks to take an investment from Altria Group, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes. So this comes just days after it was revealed that Altria also is in talks to invest in Juul, the controversial maker of vaping devices. And a few months after beer companies and alcohol companies began investing billions into cannabis. Why it matters here really is that we're seeing a consolidation of sin, or maybe I should say reconsolidation. There was a time, not even so long ago, that alcohol and tobacco companies had a lot of common ownership. So for example, Philip Morris owned Miller Brewing for over three decades before selling in 2002. So what's old is new again, just with a slightly sweeter smell. And speaking of marijuana, it is one of the growing industries that is expected to significantly increase U.S. power demand, according to a new research note from Morningstar. Other drivers are charging electric cars and powering data centers. So those three industries, just those three, are expected to account for around six percent of all U.S. power demand by 2030, according to this report. And it presents all sorts of new challenges for already stressed power grids. But at the same time, realizing those new needs could lead utilities to increase investment so they're able to handle not only that load, but also overall power needs, which would be a benefit for all of us. And we're done. Thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Grassi and Tim Shovers, have a great National Sock Day. And
1: we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.